0: And now for something completely machinima. I'm Tracy Harwood and I've drawn the short straw to be the lead co-producer for this episode of the show, working with Ricky Grove, which in all seriousness is an absolute treat for me and hopefully Alison's too. Uh, Here I'm joined with Ricky. Hello. uh, With Phil Rice. Hello. Uh, And with Damien Valentine. Hello. So, this is episode six. You know, that's six months we've been working together on this now. Uh, Can you believe that? Wow. Um, I certainly couldn't. Um, And hardly any arguments at all. And frankly, very little trolling. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, maybe that's because folks don't really know how to get in touch. Um, So, Phil would perhaps... You like to remind folks how to get in touch with us? Absolutely.
1: If you go to our website, completelymachinima.com, there's a button in the menu at the top that says Talk. If you click that button, it shows you all the different ways that you can get in touch with us. We do have an email address, talk at Uh, completelymachinima.com. You can text us on your mobile phone. Um, There is a voicemail option using reverb.chat use the voicemail, we'll probably play back and, and respond to your comment on the air. So if you're looking for a little shout out, that's a great way to do that. And we've also got a Discord server, which uh, is uh, little used, let's say. So we've kind of put <laughs> out as many you know, different methods of reaching out to us. Well, of course, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Um, we may prune those down in the future, but right now it's it's, hey, wherever you're at, if you want to drop us a line, give us some feedback, we would love to hear it. Um, some people have done so already, and it has shaped uh, the, the direction of the show. Uh, maybe not in ways that, that are immediately visible, but we, we read every bit of feedback that comes in, and we apply it and, and uh,
0: uh, try to improve the show for you. So that's the ways to get in touch with us, and we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Phil. Um, so as I said, it's great to talk to you as ever, and we've got a really packed show uh, today, um, but... We're going to think, uh, think through things in a slightly different way in this episode. Um, we'll still be discussing news and films and, and key things we think are relevant to Machinimators, but with an overarching theme related to um, that all-encompassing concept lots of folks in game and non-game contexts are referring to as the metaverse. Um, so here's a bit of the backstory. Having drawn the straw... Uh, I was desperately searching the net for some kind of hook for the show, thinking that Damien's Star Wars and space-themed episode in June was going to be a really hard act to follow. I beg your pardon, that was in May, wasn't it? Not June. It was going to be a really hard act to follow. Um, when Up popped this video by Captain Grimm, released on 15th of May, called Did Classic Wow Live Up to Expectations? Well, as I sat and watched this, and frankly, you've got to be committed to do so because it's over an hour long. Um, I realise this is actually a, a quite an interesting film. It's not a story per se, but kind of a, a docu-mockumentary uh, in which the narrator, Captain Grimm, discusses why he has returned to World of Warcraft classic. Um, so he starts by going through the good old days of WoW, flashing some fab little machinima classics up almost so quickly that their effect is to subliminally activate your machinima memory. One I immediately noticed was Lagspike Films World of Workcraft, which was such good fun. I remember showing it at a machinima festival, uh, several fe- uh, festivals, um, several years ago. I even recalled interviewing those guys about that little film, which, of course, was a parody of Office Life. Absolutely h- hilarious, really. And I, and I would still recommend it today. Anyway, Captain Grimm raises a lot of really interesting points about how and why the machinima community evolved seemingly because creativity is really hard and meme-making and Let's Plays are a lot easier to do. And whilst he's tying his points to WoW gameplay specifically, uh, uh, and in the end I felt his contribution was to highlight some of the key challenges faced in metaverse game environments, some of those issues I think are relevant to machinima and filmmaking. But also in turn, some of the challenges that he highlights are for the game environment, which is really pressured into continually evolving as a consequence of the community's response uh, to the the way people are playing the game, but also the machinima that's being created. Um, uh, And that, I think, is a really interesting um, phenomenon, so to speak. So a few of the themes that emerged from his film, uh, which we'll therefore be touching on uh, during this episode, include things like, why did people leave machinima and move on to memes and let's plays? Uh, and what are the implications for machinima making in metaverse games? Um, the use of mods, cheats and assets in metaverse games versus single player. Um, the role of community and the role of machinima in shaping communities. The responsibility of the game uh, or environment developer to, to acknowledge the role of community in machinima. And what's the best approach to making machinima in metaverse environments? So there you have it, the inspiration for episode six. But Before we move on, let's take a moment to reflect on what a a metaverse is, or at least how it's been defined, and also how they differ to open-world games. Um, I'll start, really. I've done a bit of background on it, naturally. Um, A metaverse has become known as a a collective virtual shared space with an enhanced physical reality and a physical-like persistence so it's this mix of virtual and real where non-fungible and infinite items intermingle, where things are not bound by physical limitations. Some have ascribed the metaverse with the ability to have social presence in an extensive virtual economy, uh, where you can create your own world and adapt your own experiences in it. Others refer to it as the future of the internet, where augmented and physical realities are merged, where creativity is decentralized rather than controlled by a game publisher, say. Some suggest environments such as Fortnite and Verbella are basically 2.5 dimension, uh, and only those space enabled, uh, spaces enabled through VR render them 3D. Others suggest we're already living in a metaverse. Well, of course, the term was first coined by Neil Stevenson in his 1992 sci-fi novel Snow Crash. But since then, we've had 30 years of technological advancement dominated really by A few key organizations, although much of what people talk about virtual reality, for example, um, I think predates it anyway. So much of what we are talking about is merely science fact catching up with science fiction. Or is it? Um, There's a nice little summary of the different thought leaders' perspectives on what a metaverse is and and what it isn't, um, which has recently been published in Forbes, which we'll share a link to in the show notes. And then, of course, there's this really interesting antitrust trial that's going on at the moment where Apple and Epic are embroiled in this court battle debate, um, arguing the difference between an app and a game, ostensibly because of the fallout between them over Apple's top slice store platform fee, which Epic tried to overcome by designing its own platform for processing in-app purchases in order to avoid paying said fees. What's emerged, however, is this really interesting discussion about whether these metaverse type environments are actually games. Um, Apple has has argued, for example, that Roblox, Roblox isn't a game, but an app or a platform with games in it. And of course, Epic's view is that Fortnite isn't a virtual world, but it's a metaverse, a social space where, yes, there are battle royales, but also party royales and creative modes where those party goers and creators can do their own thing. Within constraints, of course, fundamentally, however, the whole thing uh, strikes me as a, as a sort of um, the kind of behavior that you would see in an oligopoly market where just a few key players are dominating the c- control of what's going on. We'll include a link in a, in a recent article in The Verge, which sums up the trial as it stands at the moment for you. But let's not forget the term metaverse was widely bandied about when Second Life launched back in 2003 as residents began living virtual lives in emergent spaces and places on a grid that they either built or bought from other residents and where trading in virtual assets has continued to evolve ever since. It's actually really quite timely to mention this too because, of course, Eddie Altberg, the much respected uh, CEO of Linden Labs, passed away only a couple of days ago as we're recording this on the 4th of June. Uh, He'd taken over from the original creator, Philip Rosedale. Um, I recall doing an interview with with Ebby, for a project that I was working on back in um, 2014, where he'd only been in post for a few months. He said at the time that Second Life is a creative environment which was all about empowering creative people to create incredible experiences within Second Life. That Second Life is not just a game, but a storytelling platform where stories can be told in real time, effectively as they are being created and also experienced or thought through and produced. So it's a space where he saw that um, is very much about expression. He described Second Life as its own country and explained that Linden was not in the context at all, um, but that their goal was to facilitate all these different subgroups of users to do their thing in the highest quality virtual environment that they could make possible. Furthermore, he didn't see the competition as being other virtual worlds or I don't know if you recall, at the time they were um, bandying terms such as mirror worlds back then. Um, but I think they're now called um, digital twins, um, which seems to come through as as more of a concept that we're seeing in the media. Um, but he saw the competition as being Facebook, uh, not, not these other environments, which I think is quite interesting and, and probably borne out now when we look at Facebook maps and things. So for Ebby, machinima was central to second life. And fundamentally, it was a way of documenting virtual experiences, as well as recording and telling new stories in those virtual spaces, much like one would make a film in the physical world. And let's contrast that briefly with a definition of an open world game. This is where the player can explore the game's objectives more freely. And as we know, games are a set of rules within a fictional world in which action is structured and narrative is performed. The rules basically prevent access to the narrative. Um, the better you get at navigating the rules, the more the narrative reveals itself to you and so on. But in open world games, narrative takes on much more of a of a prominent role, not, not least because that fictional environment itself tends to be huge. So, for example, the size of the world in Second Life was estimated to be around 1600 square kilometres in 2015. It would take you approximately 23 days to walk over as an avatar. Uh, and that compares to Red Dead Redemption 2 now, which, which is estimated to have approximately 75 square kilometers of um, landmass. But these pale into sin- insignificance um, when you compare them to things like Minecraft, which is legally defined as a game, uh, which has an estimated surface area of, can you believe this, 4 billion square kilometers. That's seven oh times bigger than the Earth. It's absolutely astonishing anyway let's hear from Damien who's got another really interesting way of looking at these environments using slightly different terminology to that which I've just been using Damien over to you okay
2: um so even though I'm going to use different terminology it's it's kind of touching on a very similar subject so there, there's two kinds of online worlds uh MMOs uh one is the sandbox game and then you've got the theme park game um so something like World of Warcraft or Star Wars: The Old Republic is very much a theme park game because you create your character and you you start it puts you in your starting location. It says, "Okay, you need to go here and take this first quest, and then you do that, and then you go on to the next one." And it it basically guides you through it much like you would if you went into a theme park. It would you know you kind of guided and have this curated experience um, through the game world that they've created and. Typically, players don't really have any control over the environment itself. Like, they can explore it and you can interact with characters and interact with each other and, and so on. But they don't have a lasting impact on the world other than just going through it and experiencing it. You know, that you can buy things and your character evolves and, and you level up and you get um, more equipment and, and so on. But um, the next person who joins five minutes after you will see no different, um, they won't see any change that you've made as you've gone through and done your thing. Whereas in a sandbox game, again, you create a character and it puts you in the starting location, wherever it may be, and they say, well, have fun. And you're not really guided in any direction. It's just, you can do what you like. And a lot of these games, players do actually have the ability to uh, influence the world. uh, eve online is a very famous one because uh every so often you hear these stories about how um some you know all these sort of play around corporations and they control different parts of the, the game world and they have wars with each other and it um some of these wars can get so intense that it, it's the whole server can't handle it and so everyone even if they're not involved with this battle they're far away from it in the game world they're still feeling experience of it because the, the server can't cope with all this happening and you get these stories about how um, someone will spend months of real time infiltrating their rival uh, corporation and bringing it down. And then when that when that comes down, all the other corporations kind of dive in to try and grab what they can, which lent, leads to more wars and things happening. Uh, and the corporations could build space stations, um, which can be then be used for trade and upgrading ships. And players can visit them, uh, or if they're hostile, they can make sure that anyone coming by just gets blown up. Uh, um, and that space station is there in the world for everyone to go and see until someone comes along with a big enough force to, to blow it up and then then it's gone uh, until someone else comes and builds another one. Um, but that's also very lasting effects So on the game world. And uh, another one is Elite Dangerous and I'm going to tell a little bit of the story that happened when I was playing it. Um, so when the game was released... They did some tie-in novels to build out the world, you know, giving players an idea of what it's like, um, what kind of adventures they can have. So you have a there's one that's a political thriller and then someone's a smuggler and so on. So one of the books had a throwaway line. So the story was that the main character, Salome, had lost her memory at the beginning of the, the book and she was so on this quest to try and figure out who she was. And she runs into this old lady who has also had uh, an incident with her memory, and she says all she remembers is she went to the Formodine Rift and found something. But when she came back, they, with no idea who they is, some sort of conspiracy, wiped her memory so that she couldn't tell anyone of what she found. And a lot of people thought us just a little bit of world building, a nice little detail. But then the author of the book said, actually, there is something to go and find in the Formodine Rift, which then meant players would then go and try and find it. And Elite Dangerous simulates the entire galaxy at full size. So this Formaline Rift is very far away from where a player start, so it's a very long journey to get to it. And it's a huge region of space. It's not really defined on any of the in-world in-game maps. So you just have the vague description from the book of where to go and look. And um, players would... Kind of working together, and then they all put in clues and different coded messages, and so we were all trying to figure out what these coded messages meant, as and trying to find this uh, thing. And about three years after the game was launched, we actually found this thing. Um, so it's, there are some bases on planets that we had to find. You can't scan the planets; you have to physically fly over them and look down. Um, over the entire surface of the planet, which it takes hours and days because they're full size planets. And you have to find something just pixels wide.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so, the uh, ultimate wow. tedium. <laughs> yeah.
2: And there are four of these bases. And once you've got all four of them, there's, you can scan them. Once you're there, you land and you get out and you, you can scan the buildings and you get these messages. And you have to have all the messages to figure out the coordinates for this final puzzle, which is a derelict spaceship with this um, warning saying that uh, there a secret uh, organization was um, trying to find, out, find inhabited planets that um, were far away from anywhere else because they knew something Bad was coming, um, which turned out to be an alien invasion. And all of this was happening. Um, so what the author then did was he wrote a second book and he incorporated all of the player actions into the story of the book. So when you read the book and you're getting all these player names of, um, that played a big part in it, um, someone who the first person who encountered one of the alien ships, uh, he was in the book, and it's his name uh, in the book as well. So he's now part of the lore of the game world um, just because he was randomly the first one to find an alien ship. Huh. Um, and then the story, Salome, the, the character from the first book, is in the second book as well. And he held an in-world event where she was going to reveal the secrets of the secret message from the ship we'd found. But she had to get to the space station to transmit it to all the um, inhabited planets. So the, some players decided they were going to help her. And then other players decided she's secret she's going to tell is probably dangerous. So we want to kill her. So she doesn't disrupt civilization. So you have this kind of conflict between two groups of players, and um, I decided that I wanted to help her, and so this whole uh, military-style organization was put together, and so we were given very specific um, designations, and you had to be here, and this is what you had to do, and it's all very strict. Uh, and so I did my part. Uh, she went past where I was defending, and then we all kind of followed her. And unfortunately, one of the players on the other side managed to disable her ship and kill her, which <laughs> would, would then had to be included in the story of the book.
3: Oh to God. make things
2: interesting, his in-game name is Harry Potter, which meant that he could not have that name included in the book for all the legal reasons. No, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, that's the kind of thing you get in a sandbox world, uh, which you won't get in a theme park um, kind of MMO, because the this was all happening. It can only happen once because once it's happened, it's happened. Uh, but in a sandbox, you won't get that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just two different experiences. And I know that some people prefer the theme park, but some people prefer the, the sandbox uh, environment. And um, I just wanted to share that story of something that happened. It's
3: a great story. And as far as,
2: yeah. And yeah. as far as the cinema goes, with the theme park um, world, you can go in and you can explore it and you know that the environments you find are going to stay fairly static until a big update is released by the developers. And you know that's going to happen because they'll announce that this is the new expansion that's coming out and this is what it's going to do. So if you're in the middle of a machine production, you think I I like that castle, so I want to use that in my video. You know that's always going to be there. So if you're spreading out your production time over days or weeks or months or whatever it is, you know that that's always going to be there for you to use um, whenever you log in. You don't have to worry about anyone messing it up. In a sandbox game, um, you might find the castle you want, but when you're um, when you're not uh, filming, someone may come along and destroy it. Mm-hmm. Um, or you may not find the castle you want, but on the other hand, you may have the option to build your castle exactly the way you want it. Uh, and you can have that sort of control over it. So you've kind of got to weigh which side you want. Do you want to know that what you've got is perfectly safe or do you want that flexibility of, I could build what I want? But there's a risk that someone might destroy it when i'm offline
0: yes <laughs> yeah that's a major challenge i think mm. yeah so we've kind of got this idea of what the metaverse is from these different definitions of it um and it, you know this, like you said there's some really interesting ways that they're being uh e- explored and expanded um uh, i mean it some some of it comes to mind. So it's, you know, the, the Assassin's Creed, for example, was a as a kind of open world type experience, I think. But what's interesting about that is it's only recreated um, key parts of Florence, not you know fairly accurately for those key parts, but not other parts. For for other parts, it kind of uses uh, different techniques to get you across that kind of virtual space, and and it's that kind of typology in the game topology I beg your pardon which which kind of helps define the boundaries and it also helps the game publisher think about how it's going to extend play which is what you were just um talking about there so it kind of uses the natural boundaries in order to to do that um but I think it's the vastness that sort of allows for these narrative possibilities um to to emerge and it kind of what you just said there just reminds me of the one do you remember that um that game that was slated i don't know whether it was ever actually released no man's sky oh yeah yeah oh it was was released and it's having a major
3: update um it's having a major update very soon
0: 18 trillion planets that you can potentially visit well i couldn't think of anything more boring (laughs) <laughs> and I think, I I think that's probably one of the challenges here, isn't it? The fact that you know boredom is going to be one of the key things that they've got to overcome. And the, you know, I, I guess it's for that reason that the physics of these environments have been tampered with to help you get there quicker, so you can fly or teleport or spell or transport around these vast environments. Um, and I and I guess another consideration is the fact that you've got all these npcs hanging around once you've once you've played with that part of the game what happens to these npcs do they just hang around and what are they doing do they do anything in particular or are they are they just there and i think that's been one of the complaints that i've seen is that these npcs just don't do anything they don't age or you know time doesn't pass in any other way for them um they're they're not really alive, therefore, but they are persistent. They're just there.
2: Um, That's one of the things that when I was playing World of Warcraft, I, was, I started playing it and shortly after it was released, and I thought well, this is kind of fun. And I got to this village and talked to an NPC, and he said, "You're the only one who can save this village from these monsters that are attacking. And please kill ten of them." So I went and killed ten of them, and I came back, and I saw another player come up, and I thought he's just been told he's the only person that can save the village from those 10 monsters.
3: It's a con.
2: I stopped playing it at that point because I thought that is just completely drawn me out of the environment. And I don't want to play it anymore. Yeah. yeah. These NPCs
3: are, they're running a big con on everyone. That's what it is.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is the way that I'm seeing games now Mm. thinking about how they add these expansion packs on. So you know that you know one of the things you mentioned was you can download the next bit, add another castle, add another bit of the, the environment and what have you. But I've seen that um, games like Dwarf Fortress, for example, are actually thinking about how they can extend the narrative of the NPCs as as so they give them more agency basically, and that agency mm. helps to uh, invigorate and refresh the environment, which I think's you know I think that's an interesting direction of development. Yep, I don't know if you too. can script that really, but it's I think that's the way to go with that sort of thing. You don't want to get bigger than 18 trillion planets, do you? For no. three years to get from one side of the game to the next. That's just silly, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, call me old fashioned I can
2: appreciate it from a technical perspective that they've simulated this whole galaxy and that you can go anywhere. And it's all it's full size and all the planets are full size. But I think in the Six years now since the game's released, less than 1% of the galaxy has been explored because it's just so big.
0: (laughs) I bet folks are still stuck on Earth. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, um, Phil, what's your take on this? Uh,
1: What I find myself thinking about it, and maybe I'm just being too analytical, uh, but with these metaverse-type you know, virtual spaces, basically, whether they're the the game world that's defined or one that um, is, is kind of built by the participants such as second life or things like that. It's like how much of this is an actual technical resource, so to speak, and how much of it is, and this is perhaps what the big companies are really fighting over. Cause if you, if you break down Second Life, for example, just in technical terms, it's a bunch of servers. And each of those servers designates a certain amount of the virtual geography. And then players can, you know, interact with that and and build things or buy land or that kind of thing. The sandbox game probably works in a very similar fashion, except using the NFT stuff. That that's the technical underpinnings of these big worlds. It's just a bunch of servers with either procedurally generated space or, you know, developer designed space, or you take Red Dead Redemption 2, for example, the servers are all connecting to that same 75 kilometer world. It's just depending on which region you're connected to, that's what other players you might run into. And on the far end of the other, other end of that spectrum is something like Minecraft where it's, it could be anything from a single player game to you take that same world and put it on a big server or a network of servers and 100,000 players can connect at one time. Insane. And by the way, the space, the size of a Minecraft world is actually technically uh, infinite, not 4 billion or whatever, because it's procedurally generated. Every single instance of Minecraft is a procedurally generated world. It's an algorithm, basically. When they're updating Minecraft, which they've been doing for you know, more than a decade now, two decades, they're updating that algorithm. So the, the latest update that they're working on will change how mountains and caves will be generated, how much detail they are and how deep into the ground they go and things like that. Previous updates changed the way villages these, these random filled with NPC villages would spawn, but, uh, you know, the world size technically is, is infinite and you can sit down at any point, even on one computer and just start up a new world. And it is another instance of infinite space that only really generates as you explore Uh, until you've actually visited that space. It's just a mathematical formula that randomly generates this terrain and features and, and all of this. <clears throat> but I think the the thing that's really significant mm. about these metaverse worlds is what people do with it when they get in there. You know, that that what is that? Mm. You know? Yeah. Because what we bring to that world, almost all of us, whether we read Neil's novel or not. We've all been influenced by that idea. It's, cre- it's, it's all throughout movies through the past several decades. It's yes. in other novels. Mm-hmm. It's part of the way that we speak. The whole term cyberspace that was used when the internet was first rising, you know, that's that's a fantastical term that that mm-hmm. excites our imagination. And you don't think about, well, oh, it's just a bunch of servers connected together, you know, basically – you don't think about that. You're thinking about this world, you know, uh, this other, other universe, this alternate universe. And it's not really what it is. It's our, our imaginations
0: mm.
1: allow us to make it. So, so I don't know me. I'm maybe it's just cause I'm just dry or my imagination is, is good in some areas and limited in others. But I, I end up Always getting, maybe it's because I do IT for a living. All I'm thinking about is the technical underpinnings. And I I envy people who can throw themselves into this world in a similar way that really serious Dungeons and Dragons pen and paper players did when I was a kid. You know, they would just throw themselves into it. This was another world with another character that they were and participating in it and stuff. And I always struggled with that because I kept coming back to. Reality. I'll tell a funny story about that. It's not related to Metaverse, but it's worth telling. Uh, I was raised fairly religiously, as you guys know. And the first time that I was able to sneak to a friend's house to accept an invitation to play Dungeons & Dragons, the pen and paper one, he walks through the process of, oh, let's create your character. And uh, it gets, you know, well, so what do you what do you want? What, what what race do you want it to be? You know, you got Elf or Dwarf or, you know, Choices were, and it gets down to this point. All right, well, so what? What God do you want to uh, be devoted to? And of course, I just said, "Well, God," you know, capital G God. <laughs> and he's just like he was so frustrated. He's like, "No, you you can't do that. You've got to pick one of these. It's got to be Thor or this or that." Or, well, I, I'm not doing that. And again, it was that I was so hooked into reality that I, I i couldn't even allow myself to okay let's just this is fantasy let's just take this on and i think th- that people who have that level of imagination who are willing to throw themselves in and be immersed they're really they drive this you know the imaginations of those people really drive this yeah. and, and so really be great make these worlds happen yeah because when it's a sandbox type mm-hmm. world like damien was talking about when it's not a theme bar- theme park world that's been defined for you by whoever the software Disney is. It's the players that create things and, and create stories really. Uh, And uh, yeah. And, and so that's a thing that I think that people would do regardless of what the technical underpinnings are. They would want to do that. They would want to, create together. And, and, and what is that? You know, that I think is what these companies are ultimately, it seems to me that, that that's what they're fighting over ownership of because they can't think of anything except that it's some kind of a commodity to turn into money. And so they're fighting over this thing. That's not yeah. a thing really, you know, I mean, it's real, but not in the cash sense you know so uh i don't know i'm i'm kind of meandering mm-hmm. i didn't, didn't i don't have some great point here but i'm just kind of just that's that's where my mind goes as as well, we're talking about it. these well things.
0: you've made a lot
3: of great points yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah well thank you yeah i mean what you've said there is that share of time is the key here
1: yeah yeah this really is it seems like it's it's that this thing presented an opportunity but ultimately it's it's people you know melding minds and making these things happen is is the interesting part
0: um
3: ricky what's your take on this well i've been thinking a lot about um the subject since you wanted to make the podcast sort of center around it and a couple things that Phil brought up that I wanted to emphasize as well is that the impact of Neal Stephenson's snow crash was really, really big in the science fiction community, so much so that it became a kind of cultural, it changed the cultural zeitgeist in a way that was picked up again by Neuromancer, by William Gibson. Um, all of them talked about this imaginary world, this, this metaverse, essentially. And I think the, yes. the, the way that Stevenson organized it is the way that the pattern that we've been following. And that happens a lot. And that, that brought me to thinking about, well, isn't the, the impetus for world making, hasn't that been with us since we started telling stories? I mean, if you go back, mm-hmm. Dante's Inferno is a world making episode. I mean, you go from the Inferno to uh, the um, – to what's the next one after that? Inferno, Paradise is the top one, and then p- the middle one. Uh, I can't remember uh, the name uh,
1: of it. <laughs> we are not good Catholics here, are we? I can't remember. The, uh, oh, purgatory? Geez. Purgatorio? Purgatory, yeah. thank
3: you. Thank you. Purgatorio. <laughs> but anyway, that is, that's, that's an act of world-making, that that just impacted. It still impacts people today. In fact, it was so impactful it changed uh, Christianity in a way that now people commonly refer to things that are in Dante's Inferno as if they were part of the Bible. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: it's true. It's mm. so
3: impactful, and. And I think that world making that the desire to create worlds that other people can come in and be a part of has been with us for a long time. It's only in the 20th century that it got to a point where um, I think it, it really began to be something that, that could be seen as a, as a way to make money for one thing. For example, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, he wrote an essay that a lot of people don't, um, know about, unless you're a Tolkien fanatic or you're you're really fond of it. He wrote an essay while he was in the middle of writing Lord of the Rings called On Fairy Stories. And in it, he used the essay as a way of trying to figure out what he was doing because he wasn't a natural writer. Do, do you know what I mean? He didn't have the writing chops down. He sort of taught himself as he I mean, he could write because he was an Oxford Don and you have to be able to, to write well when you're in that uh, capacity as a teacher. But as writer of fiction, he was learning as he was going along. And so when he got to part, parts of the world that he had trouble with, he would write an essay or he would write about it. And on fairy stories is his way of defining something he calls subcreation. And he looked at it as a Christian would look at it. He saw God as, as sub-creating the universe, as creating this universe that is so detailed and so interlocked that it was a, a glorious act. It was a miracle. And what he wanted to do is use that same impulse to create another world, to subcreate another world. And he made points that are now commonly taught in classes, fantasy classes, which is you have to have a world that's consistent. You have to have a world that's like ours, but different, but imaginatively different. I think the impact of his world creation was so big that it caused, it moved science fiction and fantasy and even modern literature in directions that uh, were unanticipated. And And then finally, when we get to the... uh, Lord of the Rings films. Those were so impactful that they affected games, that the idea that you could have this worlds that were consistent, that they were different, but they were consistent. They had rules, specific rules. Tolkien created his world out of language, unlike most fantasy writers that write today. Fantasy writers write today, they come up with a bunch of names, they come up with ideas. I'm not saying that they're not as intelligent or as as uh, diverse as Tolkien, but Tolkien wanted to write these stories to make his invented languages more real. So he began to create myth. So the idea of myth and history being part of created worlds was a big thing in our culture, especially in the uh, Anglo-Saxon culture, mm-hmm. and that's why when Neil Stevenson Snowcrass came, came came up. He was standing on the shoulders of all of these other people before Tolkien and many others. And then when the Internet hit, it was it was a matter of timing, I think, that suddenly you could you could actually make these things happen and people could be literally inside the world. They don't have to read it anymore or they don't have to listen to it on the radio or they don't have to watch it on a screen that is separate from them. They can actually be inside of it. And I think that was so exciting that people began to think, well, if I can be entertained inside of one of these worlds, why can't I do other things in it? Why can't I have sex in this other world? Why can't I uh, pretend to be a woman if I wanted to be in this other world? Why couldn't I do all of these things that I've wanted to do in the real world, but I can't, but I can do it in a virtual world? So in a way, the metaverse is also a place where people wish fulfill themselves. Phil was absolutely right about it. It's what the people do to a metaverse that makes it interesting. That's why I found Second Life to be such an unusual and interesting place, you know. But, you know, I believe in the, I follow a lot of the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes was a philosopher of the 18th century that said, people do things out of their own self-interest. And I think that's right. And so you have a, if you're going to have a metaverse, it's going to be messy. So you're going to have things that are going to develop like you shot this machinima on my land. I want a piece of that. Or I want you kicked out because you didn't ask me permission to film this on my land, you know? Right. Or you're, you're playing a game, you're playing Warcraft. Like in that, that wonderful video that you, by uh, Grimm, that you're Captain Grimm. One of the things he talks about in it is that how upset he was about the bots mining.
2: Yeah.
3: And yeah. I just simply didn't realize that it was that big a deal. So what you have is you have these people who are, 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 are trying to want to make money. So they set up these bots. They put them in there in order to get items that they can sell to other game players. So they've taken this thing that's a game and they've turned it into their own hustle.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Another example of Thomas Hobbes' self-interest. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: And that would be the gold farming that was going on, and all in that period of time. That's that's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh,
3: so, anyway, I just wanted to express my my thoughts about those things and you asked me also to talk about some open world games is this a good time to do that or do you want to wait absolutely
0: no you carry on i think that's a good idea
3: okay one of the cool i think we're in a real peak of open world gaming in 2d in 3d and even 2d um and it's partially a reaction i think to mobile gaming mobile gaming is as on a very small scale and open world games provides a breadth of experience that is longer, more in-depth. For example, oftentimes people will ditch a linear action game that you can finish in 10 to 20 hours, and you'll go into this big sprawling epic that's 100 or 200 hours more to get through. Plus, it's much easier to do downloadable content on an open world, right? And, And developers can craft places that are that are unique, that are special places that they yield pleasure when you find them, you know, specific areas of detail. Like for example, look at, uh, look at last month, we talked about those wonderful uh, 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 stories of life documentaries that Richard Attenborough did. And the guy discovered them in, in uh, grand theft auto five. Well, there's a little, there's a little thing in an open world this guy was just wandering around and discovered all of these things in the ocean. And it caused him to create an imaginative story, a satirical story based on that. Well, the developers just put that in there because they wanted to add detail and focus. And that's at an advantage in a, in an open world game is that it can give a depth of experience. I still remember really I, in talking about this today, even now, as I'm talking I still have memories from Mists. Mm-hmm. Even though it wasn't really an open world game, it had a semblance of that. And there were moments in Mists that I just, this just blew my mind. I mean, I couldn't believe I was in this artificial world. It was so real to me, you know? Um, so open worlds are, are, are profitable. There, we're in a renaissance of them now. Everywhere you look, there's an open world game or if it's not an open new open world game, it's an open world game that's being remade as a classic, you know, they're upgrading the rendering to include uh, ray tracing, for example, Metro 2055 just came out uh, early in this month with a sort of remastered, uh, Ray traced version of the game. Um, I'm anxious to jump in and, and, and try that out, but there are many excellent open world games. Of course, the granddaddy of everything for machinima filmmakers is grand theft auto five. And the rockstar editor in that is. Pro- for my money, it's probably the, the best machinima tool that we've seen, uh, for, for machinima filmmakers. And, um, Every other open world game has to compete against uh, the Rockstar editor. And it yes. just kills me that they haven't brought it to Red Dead Redemption 2 yet. It's just, oh, God. But anyway, some of the other great uh, open world games are Fallout New Vegas and Fallout 4. Uh, there are tons and tons of mods uh, for these games. People just love to come up with new ways of changing the way it looks, adding characters, uh, camera, camera fixes and all that. Skyrim is a big one. Witcher three are all well supported. Eve online, elite dangerous for open world space mods. No man's sky has some big updates that are going to make things even bigger. Uh, Some of the, um, some of the, there's new games, like I said, Metro uh, 2055, but I'm also real fond of stalker shadow of Chernobyl, which was Mm -hmm. for me was like living inside of a great sci-fi novel. You know, it was just so strange. And then there's also Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild. Um, oh, yeah. Some of the more That's recent open movie. world games that are, have heavy modding. If you go to a uh, mod database, you'll find tons of mods Valheim, Everspace 2, Mountain Blade 2, Banner Lord, which has also been included in Omniverse Machinima, by the way, Microsoft Flight Simulator is just an extraordinary game. Watch Dogs Legion and Death Stranding, uh, the the newest one. For me, my personal favorite for modded open world games is Half-Life 2. Uh, there's a, a recent mod for that called No More Room in Hell, which turns Half-Life 2 into a zombie sort of experience. <laughs> and then Sims 4, believe it or not, a, a modder named Brook Heights Turns the game into an open world game. Wow! Which I think is, which is pretty cool. That is, cool. I would really like to experience that. I'm yeah. gonna play with that. So the last, the last thing I want to say is that I was wondering that if the part of the rise of open world games, you know, it does, it does come out of our desire to live in other worlds. to to escape into other places. But I also wonder increasingly whether it, and I I hope I don't sound like an old fogey here, but I wonder if it's a, a virtual substitute for our time spent in the natural world. You know, it's safer. It's easier. You can do it in your home. There's no mess. You don't have to take vacation time. You can go to it when you want to. And if that's the case, then I worry that perhaps
0: you don't get killed by a bear.
3: You oh, don't wait. Get, you don't get killed <laughs> by a bear, right. So, I, I, again, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but I wonder whether that push towards the virtual metaverse is sometimes a an excuse for not doing the harder thing.
0: Real anyway, life.
3: Anyway, that's, those well, are my think, things that I wanted to make.
2: Well, you in know, this past that, year... I th- I was going to say, in this past year, having that way to escape to other worlds has probably been very helpful to a lot of people because obviously oh, yeah. we can't just go anywhere or do anything. So, of
3: course, of course, you know,
2: in times like this, it, it's really good. But I do get your point of if it is easier to escape into a virtual world rather than make changes to your real life that might make things better. It also makes it easier
3: to deal with people in a in a metaverse. Yeah. You just you can stop them in a metaverse. But in the real world, you could get stalked or they could follow you. Or, but anyway, I, I just wanted to make that point as a way of generating uh, discussion.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, there that there is a sense. I feel it, too, Ricky, uh, that there's a sense of if we do. Like Damien said, this this year has been a reason to do that. There's been an expediency to it because the outside world was or or you know, was more hostile than, than we're used to. Mm -hmm. But so many people have, have tasted that and, and like it and, which I guess is fine, but yeah. What, what, what's lost, um, versus real experience thinking we, we, was it us that was talking maybe on the middle note about uh, conventions and how those have all gone. Oh yeah. Yeah. And wondering how many of them are really going to go back, not only for the financial benefit, because it's just so much cheaper for everybody concerned, for the, for the attendees and for the organizers of the events. I mean, that's the whole reason that we did the Machinima Expo virtual. Well, it wasn't the original reason, but it's the reason we stayed doing it that way. <laughs> the original reason was we had a physical <laughs> event planned and then
0: <laughs> and somebody really let us down.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, which which yeah. Phil wrote a beautiful song about. I did. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not prepared to pull that one out now that I've got kids. <laughs> but,
0: but that yeah. happens in the real world. doesn't it? Yeah, Yes. A yes, bit, it
1: does. A little bit. We'd have to mark this podcast as explicit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My wife
1: and I were watching uh, some, some show on, on, hulu the other night and this ad comes up and it's this looks like a millennial couple that they've done this thing where they can order food online and it comes and it's just a meal a stack of meals they can just put in the fridge and then they pull it out and i i assume heat it up in the microwave which you know between you and me ugh. but yeah right it's these chef prepared you know meals. And they pull them out and then they eat them and then they both look at each other with like this moment of rapture and say, "We don't have to cook anymore." As like this final thing of we never have to cook for ourselves again. And I'm just, and I, me and my wife oh, just look God. at each other. And it's just like, man, how, what? How bad are they at cooking that <laughs> that some microwaved <laughs> meal feels like a step up, you know? So, but yeah, but it, yeah. it kind of rings with that same sense of once you taste. This is this is human nature. I'm this way. We're all guilty of it, I think. That you taste conveniences that's of, of that level. It's hard to go back, but something gets lost along the way, and that's not to poo-poo yep. um, metaverse worlds at all. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful development, and the, the types of collaboration that are possible for for fun purposes and for business ones and for creative ones. It's wonderful, unprecedented expediency with which we can collaborate together and get things done. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. You
3: know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: We're in completely different parts of the planet and it's, it's amazing stuff. So there's certainly no reason to be a grumpy old troll about it. Like I'm being, but I find myself going to the same place you do (laughs) Ricky of just this sense of uh, there's, there's another side to this, you know, which, Mm -hmm. It is what
2: it is. Well, on the other hand, I think once it is safer for people to get together, I think a lot of people will be very happy to just go and see each other because we've been isolated for so, so long. I think so, yeah. Like, um, a week ago, um, I met up with one of my friends who lives it's about 17 miles away, so it's not that far away. We have not seen each other in person since we went to see uh, Rise of Skywalker together uh, oh, in late 2019. Wow. Um, so, We obviously we video chatted like we all are now and we messaged each other over online and played some games together and all that kind of stuff but just to actually be in each other's real company was such a real really good thing Yeah. That um, actually it's really hard afterwards coming home and then not having that again and it's something that I think a lot of people are going to deal with is you've been isolated for so long you go and see someone and you go home and you've got that I want more company, but we can't. I sure hope so. Not quite. (laughs) I I hope that
1: other people end up at that same place, Damien. Because, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And I don't know if you guys have heard about this. I had not heard about this. Facebook has a metaverse in invite-only beta. Have you guys heard anything about that?
0: Yeah. Called it's called Facebook Maps. Really, I think.
1: Yeah, yes. we'll have to look into that in the future. Yes. I, I, I didn't which is a, which that.
0: I think is an interesting. No, and, and I hadn't until I started doing the the background for this. But it it's why I put put in this um, comment from Ebby because um, you know Ebby very clearly saw where Facebook was right. going, and I think I think um, you know he got a very clear sense of of how that was framing up, and I think it was probably even in development at the time that he was talking to me, which would have been. July 2014, way back then.
3: The
0: uh-huh. um, thing I wanted to sort of mention, um, cause Ricky, you talked about Tolkien. Um, but super ironically, I happen to be talking to the Bronte Society here in the UK, you know, that you've heard of the Brontes. Uh-huh. Um, well, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Brontes created two virtual worlds through which they created all their literary works. They created this this world called Angria and this other world called gondor and nothing actually remains of those worlds. But all their stories, all their poetry, and the paintings that the four of them created together came out of the way that they um, they, they formed um, uh, little coalitions between between the four of them: brother and sister and two sisters. Fascinating. Uh, and, and created these virtual worlds. And it's the first ex- example I could find of fantasy worlds being used as the, the context for storytelling. Mm. And you get things like Wuthering Heights from it and, um, you know, all of those kinds of right. Um, right. No- novellas and whatnot that they, um, they wrote and what have you. But yeah, it's, fa- it's a fascinating kind of thing. And, and years later you see Tolkien, um, you know, taking that on in a in right. a, yeah. in a well in a, I mean he was based in the midlands not far from where i from where i work and, and he took that kind of context around him into that mm-hmm. uh into that storytelling but i just wanted to throw that in there because i think it's fascinating that you know 18th century writers were or 19th century writers were um, doing that uh, yeah the imp-
3: the impulse to create worlds is much, much older than we think. It's just the, te- mm-hmm. the technology of today allows people to do it with such detail that it's even more effective. I mean, yeah, we're, yes. the, the magazine in the 30s in America called Weird Tales was immensely influential on a whole series of writers, including Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, Robert Bloch, um, uh C.L. Moore, all kinds of people that are that are major writers and and they they part of the magazine included a big letters section and they would write to each other in, and included in the magazine. And they would they would borrow parts of their world. Like, for example, Lovecraft would create a, a notion of some sort of God in this world. And then Robert E. Howard would take that and put that as part of his world. So they were all creating a sort of Uber world together through influence, which is exactly what happens in Second Life.
0: Somebody
3: yeah, and, and
0: go ahead. Well, sorry. No, go ahead. Go, no, what I was going to say was, it's quite interesting, is it not, that that Hugh Hancock used Lovecraft uh, exactly. as as the uh, the virtual environment in which he created quite a lot of his work as well. Yeah,
3: I've thought about that a lot. A lot, and fantasy is one of the major, um, one of the major genres of open world gaming, I believe. Fantasy and science Indeed. fiction are the two genres that have really exploded, and it's no, it's not a coincidence that Lord of the Rings and and uh, Snow Crash are are defining works. Yes. for the metaverse.
0: Mm-hmm. So what do we think is the future of Machinima for from, from these metaverse, metaverse games then? Have we got a, a sense of that from the research you've been doing for this? Hmm.
1: Or just more of the Sims? Yeah, I'm not sure it's all that different. I think, I think that uh, there's definitely going to be more of an emphasis. When you're working with a single-player game, when somebody's crafting Machinima for The Sims, or, uh, most of the time, for Grand Theft Auto too, um, that you're you're dealing with an environment on one computer, and you may have other collaborators help, but essentially you're controlling that environment and doing it there. With Metaverse, you've got to have a a team. Uh, you really have to. Actually, I found uh, I found an unbelievably good Red Dead Redemption. To Machinima video this week, that uh, I haven't got to show to you guys yet. It's astounding, and when I saw it, I thought there must be uh, some kind of Machinima creation tool that that has just eluded us because it's so good. And it, it turns out it was one hundred percent made in Red Dead Online with no mods. You can't use mods in Red Dead Online. No mods all filmed live from a person and a a huge team of multiplayer people. And even in the comments on the YouTube video, someone asks, how the heck did you do this? Because nobody knows. Nobody knows how to do that. He just says a lot of people. And we just had to work really hard to just coordinate things all choreographed. And I'm telling you, when you see this, it's going to blow your socks off. It's unbelievable. Oh, wow. So that really, that's the kind of, Uh The, that's the kind of machinima uh, creators, I think, that are going to thrive in this environment is people who have figured out how to wrestle together and hold together and coordinate a team. Um,
3: mm.
1: And that's exciting because uh, there's, I was actually reviewing today, uh, was thinking about doing it as a preview for the stream. I went through the old list, Ricky, of all the the films that we have uh, from Machinaplex back in the day. Right. Which, there's nothing in there that's not at least 15 years old, I think. Um, and dating all the way back to, you know, Paul and Frank doing apartment hunting. Um, and I was looking through the whole list of about two dozen films in there thinking, all right, let's pick out ones that really highlight uh, that multiplayer was involved, you know, so maybe they weren't in metaverse games necessarily, but there was definitely a multiplayer. It was, a. I could hardly find any. Most of those were crafted by a single director, uh, maybe with a person or two helping out. Um, but mm-hmm. these large scale uh, productions, some of which we've reviewed in previous episodes of this show, Tracy, you had one that was done in one mm-hmm. of those medieval, uh, uh I can't remember the name of the game. One that basically specialized in oh, yes. big medieval battles. Yes. And, uh, and that was a well, I can't remember film. the name of the Yeah, film. that was a that was a team mm-hmm. effort. All the camera work was somebody actually, you know, mm-hmm. manning a camera live. Uh, I think that's that's the kind of of work that will be really be impressive there. To just go into a metaverse and mm-hmm. try to do something solo, I'm just not sure what's the point. Because it's such an uncontrolled environment. Some of the scenarios Damien was talking about—you come back and your your castle's destroyed—why uh, bother with that? But when you got a team, boy, there's some things you can do that are really hard, even with good tools, in a, a single player or a small, you know, a couple multiplayer experience. So I think that's exciting because there are certain types of stories that do well with that, you know, that that need that scale, and those are harder to tell with with old-school machinima.
2: I have tried using a game that was multiplayer. Like you know, the old um, Star Wars video I did way back. I was using Jedi Academy mm-hmm. and using the multiplayer mode. I tried having a team. I found it really difficult to... Because there's no way to say, please stand over there and then move over there because that does not exist in there. And these are people living in distant parts of the world. So it's not like there I can point know. to their screen and so say, stand there. Yeah. So what yeah. I ended up doing for some of the more elaborate shots is I have my desktop here... Uh, which I'd use to capture the footage. It's, it's the most powerful machine. And I had my laptop running the game, and I went and grabbed my mum's laptop and put that in. Your <laughs> own personal <universe. laughs> so I, uh, And then I was trying to have to control three computers all at once. And I moved <laughs> the camera on here, and I thought, I've only got two arms. So in the end, I was using my nose on the mouse <laughs> cursor on the laptops <laughs> just to make things move.
0: Uh, Damien, we learned so much from you. <laughs>
3: Ricky what? what was your thought? I was going to say two things. One is that I think a, a, a lot of times the a, a, a multiplayer machinima is usually reflects the theme of the game or the the world that's created. So for example, if you Grand Theft Auto, what do you have nine, you know, every day when I go to YouTube and I type in machinima and say today or 24 hours, I'll get 99% of the machinima is Cops and robbers or noir machinima. Yeah, that's it. So I think the the great majority of open world or metaverse machinima is going to be based on the theme of the world that it's in, uh, which is okay. But I think the standouts are going to be the one that am- use it more imaginatively, I think. They're going to be more interesting ideas about it. Uh, the second thing is that I think that um, the – the documentary idea inside of a metaverse is a, is a fascinating thing that I had actually forgotten about until we I watched the Tutsi Navrada uh, uh, film that you, rec- you recommended that you're going to talk about later. And I realized it's people in the metaverse watching people in the metaverse. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a, it's a very strange thing that doesn't occur. In game-based open worlds, you just don't have other machinima film, other film, uh, other players making films about other players doing their stuff. You you know, it just doesn't happen. So I think that's a fascinating thing. And I think that's a a good future for, it's something that perhaps open world uh, should do more of, you know. But anyway, I just thought that was an interesting idea.
0: Mm. great well okay so that's um that's a really fascinating uh, discussion i think um and i think you know given we're up to an hour and almost 10 minutes i think that better be it for this uh section of our july episode so with our thanks to um captain grim for stimulating our debate um, great
3: video great video
0: great video absolutely we'll put we'll put a link to the um to that video in our show notes as well. Um, And also really just to say, if you want to find out what his conclusions are, are, um, you've got to watch it (laughs) uh, on whether WoW Classic lives up to his expectations. Um, So definitely recommend that. Um, So guys, thanks for a great discussion. In the next section of the podcast, we're going to be talking about some of those key issues that we've touched on here, um, but do it in the context of some of the the films that we've um, picked out to help us reflect on those points. Bye for now. And now for something completely machinimal.